If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In her book, From Rage to Reason, Why We Need Sex Crime Laws Based on Facts, Not Fear, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2023, Emily Horowitz shows how current sex offense policies in the United States create new forms of harm and prevent those who have caused harm from the process of constructive repentance or contributing to society after punishment. Emily Horowitz is professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So let's get started. Uh, Could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? So um, I wrote a doctoral dissertation on domestic violence policy. And I wrote that dissertation in the late 90s. And it was uh, informed by what I had learned as a college student and a graduate student um, that courts are the best way to deal with social problems, that um, things like domestic violence, if they were handled properly by the courts and by the criminal legal system, that would be like a really innovative way to prevent crime and particularly to prevent domestic violence, which I had um, thought as a result of my training was was a problem of um, the patriarchy and a problem of courts not taking it seriously. And also I learned in graduate school that domestic violence was a problem across the board, rich, poor, black, white. Um, and then I started doing my research and I spent a lot of time in a domestic violence court part, which was a domestic violence court in Brooklyn that only saw domestic violence cases. Um, and I learned a lot there and I learned that most people in that court were poor, most people were not white, um, and that domestic violence crimes were not what I had thought they were. They were, they were very complicated. In many cases, um, the women did not want 
the men punished to the extent that they were punished. Um, most of the men were not employed. They had, they didn't have a lot of education. And it kind of like blew my mind that the courts, it just looked like any other court part. It looked like any court part for any crime. Um, so uh, I wrote a dissertation that was very critical of the ability for social movements like feminism to work within the court system and solve these problems. Then um, as I was finishing my dissertation, I met somebody who had been convicted of a sex offense and I started to see the same things. Um, This person was um, unable to get a job, to find housing, to rebuild his life after the conviction. Um, And it came from this uh, largely feminist uh, approach to punishment that involved women and children. The idea is, you know, punish people to the fullest extent possible, and that will stop or prevent new offenses. Uh, But what I learned is that it's very, very complicated, and that it's very easy to vilify people who uh, commit offenses that are very emotional and upsetting, but the courts and the criminal legal system are not the way to resolve these problems. Right, right. And speaking of feminism, uh, you write that there is, quote, a dangerous intensification of rage and misinformation on the left and the right regarding the extent, pervasiveness, and reality of sexual violence. I'm wondering, how do liberals and conservative activists frame the problem of sex abuse differently? So one of the reasons why um, initiatives such as domestic violence courts or uh, sex offense laws, draconian sex offense laws, are so successful is because they, they are embraced by both the left and the right. And it's this strange alliance that emerged in the early 70s, where feminists felt, right, rightfully so, that courts didn't take these, these uh, issues seriously. Um, if you called the police and you said, I'm a victim of domestic violence, I'm a victim of sexual abuse, they would ignore you, they would laugh you off, they wouldn't take it seriously, there was no processes like rape kits or anything like that. So feminists rightfully wanted police in the courts to address these issues, um, and they fought for that. On the right, there has always been um, a push for punishment, increased punishment for everything across the board. So in terms of uh, sexual violence, the collaboration of the left and the right has led to the success and near universal support for these laws. Right, right. And um, speaking of which, you note that, that society in general tends to view those who are convicted of sex offenses as fundamentally different and worse than other kinds of uh, uh, people who have uh, committed other types of offenses, even those who are guilty of murder. So w- why is it this the case? Why does uh, uh, sex abuse uh, get viewed in a, a, a completely different uh, light? Well, I'm, I, I, I would agree it's viewed in a completely different light. I'm not... It, I'm not that sure. There's a there's a lot of reasons why. Um, I think because it is viewed with such disgust by both um, ideologies, by everyone, um, it's a universal enemy. So everybody comes together 
hating people who commit sex offenses, right? So um, feminists and people on the left are really disgusted by the idea of women and children being harmed. On the right, there's uh, law and order Republicans and people who just think um, the way to prevent these things is to punish, punish, punish. So they've been given this like elevated uh, status. And it hasn't always been like that. Uh, There have been um, ebbs and flows of sex panics, but I no longer kind of think of it as a sex panic because it's just been like nearly 40 years of this. The idea of a panic would be it ebbs and it flows, um, but this is not receding. And in fact, um, I wrote a book about this uh, eight years ago and I was going to move on to another subject or do something else. But the reason why I wrote this new book is because things have gotten worse um, on both the left and the right. The emergence of Me Too increased um, anger about sexual violence, rightfully so again. Um, And then on the right, with the election of Donald Trump, emerged um, a lot of conspiracies and ideas about people on the left being um, involved in things like sex rings and and, um, perverted in some way. So um, both of those those social movements brought the issue of of sexual violence to the forefront um, and again created this common enemy. So people are are totally irrational about it. There's no there's no side that advocates for this part. Right. And um, what do you see as the cause of most sex offenses? And how different are these factors uh, from those attached to other sorts of crimes? So I've interviewed hundreds of people who've been convicted of sex offenses. I'm familiar with virtually all of the literature. Um, And it seems that most sexual offenses are committed by people who um, are at points in their life where they're struggling. They're either struggling with um, uh, substance abuse. They are dealing with untreated emotional and mental illnesses. Many people who have developmental disabilities are convicted of sex offenses. Most people are at a point in their life where, um, just like with any other offense, they're not um, dealing with issues that they have. Um, Many of these crimes are opportunistic. Somebody's in a situation. The stereotype of somebody like this term, quote unquote, predator, this idea that somebody who commits sexual violence is um, some kind of person who's always thinking about um, committing their next offense and planning it in some kind of, you know, way, premeditated way is just not the case. And and I think people who commit sex offenses, just like anybody else, should be punished. They should um, be incarcerated if they are convicted of an offense. They should have to be on supervision. But um, just like anybody else, after that, they should have the right to be left alone if they fulfill their obligation to the state. My my larger argument is that these laws are, are punishment. They happen after uh, people have completed their criminal sentence. The reason they've been upheld is they're viewed as civil penalties, which they're not. They're public. They're essentially banishment laws. Right, right. And I just you 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 already touched on this, but I uh, I just want to sort of highlight this point. Uh, I know that critics of your scholarship often claim that you're quote too soft on 
uh, uh, sex offenders, on people who have committed these crimes, or uh, um, that you don't take seriously enough the harm of sexual abuse. And I know that this is absolutely not the case, but I just wanted to kind of highlight this and give you uh, a moment to uh, kind of reiterate this point so that it's clear for people who are not, you know, uh, familiar with you or and your work. Well, I mean, these laws are not about accountability or helping victims of sexual violence on any level. And there's research that shows that many victims of sexual violence don't support these laws. These laws don't make their lives any better. It doesn't give them any, um, you know, uh, quote unquote closure, um, punishing people to the fullest extent of the law is 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 vengeance. It's not justice. Um, these people have been held accountable in the sense that they've been punished, but this is not accountability. Many of the people I interviewed are are homeless. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They're living on the fringes of society. They've been thrown in the garbage. Um, this is not about um, helping victims. And in fact, uh, Eric Janis, who's a legal scholar, has pointed out that the Me Too movement, which really focused on the most routine, pervasive forms of sexual harassment, emerged after decades of the harshest uh, laws regarding sexual offenses. It didn't prevent that kind of harassment. Um, it didn't prevent people, men in power from routinely sexually harming women and um, children. What it did was it just punished the small amount of number of people that were actually convicted of these offenses, which again, were people who lacked power, that were um, people of color overrepresented on uh, sexual offense registries. It's just another arm of the criminal legal system, you know, beating up on the few people that get ensnared in it. Um, but what Janice also pointed out was that there's this epidemic of rape kits throughout the country that aren't being tested. Police routinely like put rape kits away and don't test them. It's not a priority for them. And that is some way to prevent sexual violence and help victims, but they don't care. So just it's much easier to just keep increasing penalties for the people that um, come to their attention than actually trying to address more pervasive problems of sexual violence. Right. And uh, to help set the stage for people who are not familiar with this, um, you know, this issue, what exactly is the sex offender registry and just how invasive is it? So um, I call it the registry regime. Many people call it that because it, part one of it is there's a public registry. So after you're convicted of a sexual offense, you're listed on a registry um, in the state where you're convicted or where you live. If you move, you'll be listed on more than one state's registry. Um, and it has your photograph, your address, um, then a lot of other information depending on the state. It has like the license plates for your cars, um, lots of information about you. So if you try to get a job or go to church or engage in any kind of social network, anybody can look you up and see that you have a sexual offense, which happens pretty frequently. Um, today, when we meet people, we Google them. So anybody that's on this, it's there for life. It's on the internet. Um, if you're convicted of, as you pointed out, uh, taking someone's life, 
you don't find that out unless there was like a newspaper article about it. You look them up and you're not going to see where they currently live. Um, so you're on this list from the time you're convicted, sometimes when you're in prison, while you're on supervision, and then in many states for the rest of your life. Um, and that really destroys people. Most people on the registry have parents. Almost everyone does, right? They have parents, they have siblings, they have children, they have nieces, they have nephews. This destroys the whole family. I heard story after story of kids whose parents were on the registry um, and the mortification that that entails. Um, In addition, there's community notification laws where in some localities you get a postcard either when the person moves in or on an ongoing basis, like every year, like this person is on the registry and they live down your, down the street from you. So even if you don't seek it out, it's there. Um, other aspects of being on a registry, uh, there are res- residency restrictions. Certain communities don't allow you to live there if you've been convicted of a sex offense. Um, in some states like North Carolina, there are proximity laws. You can't go to state parks. You can't go to pools. You can't go, quote, unquote, to places where children congregate. So you're subject to these endless restrictions that are almost never um, rolled back, but more and more always um, appear. So as a common theme throughout my book, people said, the longer I'm offense-free, I've been out of prison 20 years, the more the restrictions grow. It does not matter how long I'm offense-free. All people see is that I'm on the registry and I'm subject to more and more restrictions and things are getting worse and worse and worse. Um, There's also restrictions on travel. Even if you visit another state for a few days, you have to register there depending on the laws of the state. Some states it's two weeks, some it's two or three days. That's an extreme uh, burden on people if they travel for business, if they travel to visit relatives. Um, they have to go sign in at a police department, regardless of how long they've been offense-free. Uh, there are also international travel restrictions. There's The people on the registry are the only group of Americans that have stamps on their passport that indicate their criminal history. Um, this was a law passed very quietly with very little um, fanfare, international Megan's Law. And that also creates huge burdens and mortification for people. In a couple of states, there's a stamp on your driver's license that says um, you're on the registry. So some of these laws, if you don't talk to people, it's kind of like, well, you know, they're not in prison, they can figure it out. Um, But together, this web of laws creates a class of branded banished people um, who basically are on the fringes of society and struggling every day to get by and nobody cares. Um, And as you pointed out, if you say, Hey, maybe this isn't fair. Maybe these are, maybe these are human beings. Um, They deserve the right to rebuild their lives. Um, People say, I don't care. You know, um, they should be, they are. The last chapter of my book is called Worse Than Murder. They say it's worse than murder because they did something that is so bad. They destroyed someone's life, so they should be destroyed. Right. And in fact, you're treated better if you if you take the life of a woman or a child than if you are convicted of sexually harming them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, right. Um, uh, just to clarify again for listeners, is there any evidence that the sex crimes registry actually reduces the prevalence of sex crimes? No, there's not. Um, that's the problem. Um, sex offenses have lots of motivations, right? They happen, as I said, when people are um, in ve- at very low points. There's many people who uh, served in the military or struggling with PTSD, et cetera. Um, and the rates of sex offenses started declining in the late 80s, and they've been declining steadily. And the reason for that is not the registry. Registries weren't widely implemented until the mid-90s. Um, but it, they started declining as a result of efforts to raise awareness and it emerging as a social problem in the culture. There's also evidence that um, in times of uh, low unemployment, there's lower rates of sex offenses. People who um, have more um, financial stability are less likely to be victimized. Um, so the data shows that the registry is not responsible for the decrease in sex offenses. Um, most people who get convicted of sex offenses are not on the registry. It's over 95% of people who get convicted of new sex offenses do not have a history of committing sex offenses. And also most people um, who commit sex offenses the person they they harm is known to them. So the idea of the registry was like, oh, you can see if there's strangers in your neighborhood and they're they they then you can kind of avoid them and they won't harm your kids. But unfortunately, most children and women uh, and some men are victimized by people they know. So the premise of the registry was that it would prevent stranger danger, that it would prevent kids from being abducted and and killed for sexual purposes, um, which almost never happens anyway. Um, It's far more likely that you'll be harmed by somebody you know. So even if, you know, the registry was effective, like it it would only impact those who um, stranger cases because, and, and people with histories of committing sex offenses. For whatever reason, once you're convicted of a sex offense and you're punished, you're very unlikely to commit a new sex offense. And there's a lot of theories behind that, but recidivism rates for people who commit sex offenses are lower than for almost any other offense. Um, A lot of it, I believe, is because um, you get treatment and you are punished. And the punishment is so harsh and the stigma so great that you realize that if you're convicted of another sex offense, you will be incarcerated for life or worse. Right. Right. And uh, what is civil uh, commitment and how widespread a phenomenon is it? So civil commitment is sort of like the worst um, punishment you can get if you are convicted of a sex offense. And that's after you. So people on the registry, the people I interview are people who have been uh, released from incarceration So they're living their lives and they've fulfilled their punishment. People who are civilly committed complete their criminal sentence. They max out 
um, the sentence that the state has uh, determined that they serve. And they're put in um, sort of civil commitment facilities, which are essentially jails, but they're kind of supposed to be, you know, therapeutic hospitals. Um, And it's terrifying. Most states um, have these facilities. Um, I'm not sure of how many exactly. It's extremely, um, they're kind of like shadow prisons. But um, in states like Minnesota and other states, there's evidence that nobody ever gets out. So you're put there. And because they're not, um, it's not a criminal punishment, you can't appeal being there. You don't have any right to legal representation in New Jersey. Um, there's a facility where almost nobody ever leaves. So you're kind of in this jail forever. And the idea is that you're too dangerous. Your risk is too high. You're too likely to reoffend. So you can be civilly committed, but you're in a locked facility, um, kind of a locked hospital facility, but it's essentially a jail where you don't even have any right to legal representation. There's no criminal um, appeals process. So um, that's a pretty terrifying um, experience. And there's some really good people working on it, but I didn't interview anybody in those facilities for my book, though I've spoken to them. And it's a pretty harrowing um, situation. Right. Right. So you spoke to people who committed an offense. They were tried. They were convicted. They went to prison. They finished their their sentence. They came out. And then uh, your uh, this uh, um, new book focuses on the many uh, uh, harms that um, affect them because of their status on the sex crimes registry. Yes. Yes. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how uh, being on the the sex crimes registry impacts a person's ability to earn an income? So, actually, my book is divided up by all of the impacts. So, in general, um, if you want to get a job, right? Um, there's a lot of laws actually now where they they're not supposed to ask you about your criminal history or they're not supposed to discriminate based on your criminal history. And there's many protections that have kind of emerged. And I should also say one of the motivations for this book was that I saw starting about 10 years ago, a lot of um, empathy and progress being made for people convicted of any kind of offense um, in terms of their civil rights and getting rid of barriers to reentry. Because we know that if you want people to not reoffend across the board, whatever the offense is, you want them to have the opportunity to get a job, have housing, have stability. Those are the biggest predictors of not returning to prison. So I saw there were a lot of movements um, to kind of like uh, help people who'd been convicted of of any kind of crime um, and give them more opportunities. So, um, but people on the registry, even if they apply for a job and they're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of criminal history, you just Google the person everybody's like the HR department. Everybody at the workplace will know you're on the registry. Everybody at the workplace will know you have a criminal history. In addition to which, there's some states where they do have laws that you cannot discriminate on the basis of criminal history, but there's like exceptions. Some will say like outright if you have a sexual offense, but more often it's like, you know, unless the the crime relates to the... 
kind of ability for the person to do their job. And so with a sexual offense, you can say, oh, well, there's women in the workplace, there's children in the workplace, you can say all kinds of things, and it and it is legally okay, right? Um, so basically, there there's a really good article um, about how being on the registry makes us all HR. We're all surveillance. You know, we can all find, we can find out anything about anyone. So that's the problem. A lot of times people will <clears throat> be told by a hiring manager, like, look, you're really qualified. I'd love to have you here, but it's going to make, you know, it's going to put me in trouble because everybody's going to know that you have a sexual offense. It's not private. So that's why like part of the registry is like people just want to be left alone. People serve their time. They deserve just to be left alone. Um, you're not protecting anyone with these laws and you're just making it impossible for people to survive in the world. You're branding them with the worst um, label you could possibly brand them. Um, so, and it's gotten worse. Um, <clears throat> many people said, many people who've been on the registry like 30 years will say like until five or six years ago, I was able to work. I was able to kind of keep my job, but the extent of surveillance and the extent of social media is so much more pervasive now that people are far more um, aware of who people are and what their histories are. All right. And you also noted in your book that um, I, I, I forgot the, the name of the, of the person who, who discussed this, but uh, you talk about one particular person, but clearly this is a larger issue that they said essentially that when they they um had uh, agreed to a plea deal 20 years ago 30 years ago whatever it was there were certain rules in place but that because they agreed uh to the plea deal and 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 uh you know um uh, accepted that they they were guilty for this sex offense. Then twenty or thirty years later, when different rules were put into place, suddenly those rules also directly impacted them in really punitive ways. Yeah, there was a lot of people that I spoke to who were convicted of sex offenses before 1996 when registries were widespread, and then they were put on them um, afterwards, which I'm not a lawyer, but apparently that's legal. Um, and there's been some pushback against that, and there's been some successes, but many people took the plea at a time where there were not registries, not realizing they would in the future be impacted by registration. And even people who um, were placed on registries, sometimes they would, when they were, when they took the plea, the term of registration was like 10 years or 20 years. And then the state laws changed and they're put on the registry for life. Wow. And you note that, that some of, I don't know if, you know, if, which particular parts of these legal, um, applications uh, were were in play, but some of these laws have gone to the Supreme Court where they've tried to argue, well, this is, you know, not constitutional or whatever. And, and how did the Supreme Court respond to those concerns? Well, so one of the problems is, is that the registry has been upheld on the grounds that it's not punishment because you're not in a jail or prison, right? It's a civil, it's a civic, a civil punishment. You're just on this list. Like, what's the big deal? Like you can, you know, kind of live your life. You're not incarcerated. You don't have a parole officer, right? Um, they're just kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a list to kind of help the police and help the public. And the premise for why, uh, 
these laws are upheld is that, well, the recidivism rate for people on the registry is so high. This great scholar, Ira Elman, wrote this article where he found he wanted to see why did the Supreme Court say that the recidivism rate is frightening and high when all the research shows that the recidivism rate for people convicted of sex offenses is extraordinarily low. And he found that even the Supreme Court relied on a debunked source, which was like a Psychology Today article that said uh, recidivism is really high for sex of people convicted of sex offenses. And it was just an interview with like a treatment provider who said, yeah, they need treatment for life because if they don't get treatment for life, they'll, you know, commit another sex offense. It was just a shoddy source. Um, And that's what upheld. So hopefully maybe if it comes before the Supreme Court again, a similar you know, case, uh, it can be overturned on the grounds that recidivism is not frightening and high. That was kind of the justification for them. Right. And how do people on the registry deal with the possibility of being outed as someone with a conviction for a sex crime? Um, They're extremely traumatized, extremely uh, fearful, depressed, it's it's a struggle. I mean, you're talking to people who really um, one one person described it as being half alive and half dead. You know, like they're part of the world, but they're not part of the world. They can walk around and do certain things, but they don't have the same rights and the same privacy that everybody else has, um, including people who've been convicted of taking people's lives. They're kind of like. Um, not human. Over and over, people said, I'm a human being, but everybody views me as a monster. Right. And you note that many people on the registry have a history of substance abuse, mental illness, PTSD, uh, and intellectual disabilities. Uh, Do the people on the registry see a relationship between these conditions and the sex offenses they committed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I take people's um, word when they tell me, you know, this is why I feel like this happened. Um, most of the people I interviewed had been in treatment, a lot of treatment. There's mandates for treatment while you're incarcerated and while you're on supervision. Um, and they thought endlessly about the motivations and why they did it. And of course, they have like tremendous regret. Um, because of what happened as a result. So they would, you know, tell the story in a way that made sense to them. And that was um, one of the mandates of treatment that's pretty troubling is that you constantly have to confess and tell your story and take accountability. If you don't participate in treatment, you can be incarcerated for longer or on supervision for longer. So they tell their stories in, in, in kind of an interesting way. Um, they never, you know, they always say, I'm not blaming the victim. I am taking accountability. Um, you know, here's what happened. I was, you know, abusing drugs or alcohol, or I wasn't dealing with my depression or the trauma I suffered while I was, um, in the military or my own sexual abuse. Um, And they are pretty, I mean, the people I interviewed were pretty um, insightful about why they did it. Nobody I 
include in the book, you know, blamed the victim or blamed um, anything else besides their own weaknesses. Um, but it was pretty clear to me, you know, um, state mandated treatment is pretty problematic. Polygraphs are pretty problematic. The whole treatment regime is pretty um when it's when it's working with the state and when if you don't say certain things you're not going to be released or present yourself in a certain way and one thing that i also noticed that a lot of people with intellectual disabilities had a lot of trouble graduating from the treatment or getting approved because it's it's requires a lot of confessions and taking accountability and, and, and writing letter, imaginary letters to your victim, um, things like that. And some people simply couldn't do it because they didn't have the ability to do it, which was also pretty troublesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to highlight, you mentioned about how uh, you know, some of the people who were on the registry were themselves victims earlier on of sexual abuse. And I remember in your first book, you highlighted the kind of uh, uh, you know staggering rate of sexual histories of sexual abuse uh, for people who were on the registry. And uh, if you could just talk about that for a minute, because I think, again, it doesn't excuse anyone's... Um, you know, culpability, but it does, uh, um, you know, contextualize, uh, you know, what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, my thinking on that has developed a bit because I think I, I run a program where I, uh, work with people not on the registry who have experienced incarceration. Um, I teach in a, in a, in a prison. Um, and most people who are impacted by the criminal legal system across the board have histories of trauma. And there's a lot of literature that's emerged about that, particularly women who are incarcerated. Um, so I kind of think of it more, you know, not so much as they experienced sexual abuse, so they turned around and, and committed sexual abuse, right? I think of it more like just experiencing all kinds of personal trauma makes one um, less able to, you know, live in the world and obey laws, right? I mean, you just, you do things that um, you're not thinking clearly or you're not in a place and you're more likely to not think clearly or struggle when you haven't, when you have untreated trauma, sexual or otherwise. And most people that wound up in this situation, um, they've been traumatized. They're not just like, you know, successful, great, happy person um, who does this because of uh, this myth of, of some gene or characteristic that makes them a quote-unquote sexual predator of some kind. You know, like this term predator is really problematic because you don't hear it so much about people who commit other offenses, but it's, you know... Um, a way to characterize somebody as, as, as an uncontrollable animal who needs to be monitored and surveyed forever. They can't be helped. It doesn't matter. They can't stop. They won't stop. Yeah. I, I just to go back to one point. So you, uh, uh noted that, uh, um, 
I don't know, many people, the majority of people, I don't know, who are on the registry um, were found to be struggling with, with mental illness, with uh, substance abuse, with PTSD, you know, things like that. Um, I'm just wondering, is there scholarship on the possibility that there's many other kinds of people who are sexually abusing, you know, people in society, especially people that they are, you know, socially close to, but because they don't maybe have mental illness or substance abuse or PTSD, that they're just much better at not getting caught. And that, you know, in other words, that when we think about who are sex, uh, uh, who are the people who are committing sex abuses, we're essentially only looking at a tiny sliver of the, the, the full population of people who are committing the same act, but are, 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 are differently able to, to cover it up or not cover it up because of the, the issues that they're struggling with. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I think like that's, that's the problem with all uh, people that are impacted by the criminal legal system, right? If you have resources, um, if you you know, are, are manipulative and successful and you can handle it. And um, I'd argue it's probably more about like economic resources or like social resources or communities. Like um, we know in certain religious communities, people get away with um, sexual abuse because they're kind of protected by their social network. Um but you see that across the board with financial crimes, with anything, you're far more likely to be be arrested if you, you don't have power. So like it's a question of power. And that's also why you're not really addressing most forms of the most mundane daily forms of sexual abuse, sexual violence, harassment. That's what Me Too showed. It was going on everywhere in spite of these laws, in spite of these lists, right? Uh, the people that got away with it aren't on these lists and the people... Um, that aren't arrested have power and control and all kinds of other things. So you're just overly punishing this small group because you don't know how to address the bigger problem. Right, right. No, exactly. I, I agree with all that. I'm just saying that when we think about sexual abuse, or certainly like if someone reads your book and they say, oh, wow, you know, I don't know, the majority of people on the sex registry have uh, these physical uh, or, or psychological disabilities or uh, histories of trauma, whatever. Um, and they might think that those characteristics lead people or, you know, make people more likely, whatever, to commit sex abuses. And it's entirely possible that that's not the case. That right, right. All kinds of people are committing sex abuses. It's just the people that have those characteristics are, are either worse at sort of covering them up or have a harder time staying out of the court system and being punished for their misdeeds. Right. Absolutely. I would totally agree with that. I think that um, it's a really vulnerable population. Um, and as I said earlier, people on the registry, the, the data shows that people of color are overrepresented. And that just looks like everything else, right? So if th there is a there is a connection, I think, you know, one of the things people always say, well, like, what do you want? What do you think would be great? And I'm like, just move back to like the 90s the early nineties, like how we treated people convicted of sex offenses then is fine with me. Um, I think doing this is not 
helping anybody and it's destroying people and it's not protecting women and children or any other vulnerable populations that are disproportionately harmed by sexual abuse and sexual violence. Right. Um, and speaking of mental health, how is the mental health of those on the registry impacted mm -hmm. by being on the registry? I mean, it's, it annihilates them emotionally and psychologically. It is amazing to me that many people said to me, um, if I had known how bad it would wind up being, I would have taken my life. But, you know, going through this, if I had known that this was, you know, going to be my life, I would have ended it long before. Um, it It's pretty, it's funny, because when you know, you do like interviews, and they say, you know, if anybody expresses thoughts of taking their own life, you have to like call this number. And I'm like, I couldn't do that because every single person discussed with me their whole plan for like, um, would have been aye. overwhelming, you know, and, like, <laughs> um, one thing I mentioned in the book that really struck me is that a number of people said to me, you know, I have fantasies of saving a child because maybe if I save a child, people will look at me as human. Um, a number of people also said to me, um, they said, you know, did you, uh, have you ever heard of that <clears throat> uh, monk who set himself on fire outside the White House for the Vietnam War? Like, do you think if I did that, you know, that would help other people in the situation? And it's a weird reference that three or four different people said to me um, out of the blue, like these fantasies of doing something um, to show the world that they're not monsters. You know, everybody said, everybody thinks I'm, you know, the guy who kidnapped and murdered uh, Adam Walsh or Megan Kink or all these, you know, kind of um, laws that the, that, that prompted the registry. They all think I'm like that guy, you know, um, it doesn't matter the situation or what I did or how I've tried to improve myself or change my life. It doesn't matter. Nothing I do matters. Um, so yeah, psychologically, it's 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 everyone's like greatest nightmare to be branded in this way and be treated in this way and be subject to these rules and regulations that grow worse every single year. Um, and I was all, I mean, I was surprised at the. I mean, it was also kind of inspiring because one of the things that almost everyone said to me at the start of the interview. Um, and I mentioned this a couple of times in the book was like, listen, like, I don't feel sorry for myself. I have it way better off than other people on the registry. Like I'm doing really well compared to all of these other people. Um, and people would say this to me who are like living in their car, who, you know, didn't seem to me to have, you know, the world at their fingertips. Um, but they were very, um, empathetic towards others, like in a very um, genuine way. They also all said to me, like, in some ways, even though this was the worst thing that ever happened to me, it was the best thing because I was asleep. I wasn't dealing with my issues. I wasn't dealing with my problems. I don't know who I was then. And now I'm awake and dealing with this. Um, but all of those feelings would happen if you just went to prison and supervision and weren't subject to these things, you know, you would have that realization. Um, and I mean, the recidivism rate is very low, but I'm surprised it's so low because all the research shows that 
<clears throat> you know, if you take away people's ability to live and network and have a life, it's going to be harder not to reoffend, right? But the rates of reoffense are consistently low, and they have been before the registry and since the registry. Right, right. And I should just mention, as you know, I also uh, have taught in uh, prison for several years. And, you know, uh, of course, I didn't uh, ask my students, you know, what they had done to, to end up in prison. You know, that's something that, that is not, you know, sort of discussed. Um, and uh, understandably so. Um, but I know because some students would kind of tell me what their story was and people were there for all different kinds of offenses, many, you know, drug related offenses, but also, you know, violent crimes and different things. And I, I could just add that uh, people in prison in general, it seems to me become uh, tend to become very reflective of their experience and because they have, you know, so much time to, to sit there and they're going through a very painful experience that it kind of naturally lends itself to reflection and thinking about their past and how they want to do things differently or how they would do things differently if they had a chance to. So clearly that happens, as you were saying, even, you know, just uh, having spent time in prison without the added uh, trauma of the sex crimes registry after people have left prison. Yeah. And all the research shows, for example, I taught in a women's prison and the research on um, the life experiences of women who are incarcerated shows that an extraordinarily high number of them have experienced physical and sexual violence throughout their lives. Um, right, right. Um, and I'm curious, uh, how are the lives of parents, children, and partners impacted by having uh, uh, someone in their family or someone they're attached to uh, be placed on the registry? Yeah, I mean, that's the collateral consequences are so profound. I mentioned kids on the registry. Um, one survey showed that 60% of people on the registry had children. Um, if your parent is on the registry, they can't come to your school functions. They can't pick you up at school. Um, there's lots of rules for where your family can travel and what you can do. Um, but more profoundly, the level of shame and humiliation um, of having your parent and your home listed. Everybody in the home is subject, right, if there's a community notification. So um, there's a lot of amazing advocates for red, you know, for repealing registry laws, who are women? Actually, the majority I think are women. They're mothers and wives, um, because they see how they're being victimized, and their kids and their, you know, families are harmed by this public shaming. Um, kids are impacted when their dads can't um, earn a living. Kids are impacted. Um, when their family is experiencing banishment and uh, can't find a home. Um, wives can't be supported. Um, and many mothers say, you know, their adult sons can't make a living. So they have to take care of their adult sons forever. Um, they're all being punished. So 
it's pretty um, horrifying. I remember I read on a kind of like a forum for people on the registry. Um, this man was saying, like, I'm the only dad in America who's praying that um, his daughter isn't the valedictorian because I won't be able to attend her graduation. And at least if she's not the valedictorian, it won't look that bad. But the fact that I can't enter the school um, and these are all absurd laws. Like if you're going to a graduation ceremony with your wife to see your daughter graduate, there's zero chance that you're going to like harm a child who's there. Um, it's bizarre and it's, it's absurd. So many uh, dads I talked to felt so um, guilty for not being able to attend sporting events or help their wives. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, these laws are, 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 they're just crazy. I don't have like a more sociological, like, <laughs> you know, uh, term to use. They're just crazy and cruel and mean spirited and stupid. Like they're just useless. And, and when you work on this, like I start the book saying like, sometimes I feel crazy because when I talk to people about it, who are empathetic people who are supportive of criminal legal reforms, they are not okay talking about this. They're like, I don't want to hear it. These are monsters. They have harmed the most vulnerable. I don't care if their lives are terrible. I don't care if they suffer. It does not matter to me because I think they think it's virtuous to want to punish somebody who has sexually harmed somebody. So it feels like, you know, you lack, you lack empathy because as you started by saying like, well, what about the victims, you know? Um, but, but again, this isn't accountability. This isn't justice. This isn't, you know, um, helping anybody. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> speaking of, of, of your passions and, and, you know, attachment to, to this issue, um, how do you see the relationship between your commitment to feminism with your advocacy on behalf of people convicted of sex crimes? Well, most of my, I mean, I started working on this with a group of feminists. Um, there's a great book by Judith Levine and Erica Miners called The Feminist and the Sex Offender, which is I such an excellent title. It, it, yes, it is excellent title. Yeah. I just want to interject that I've interviewed them for the New Books Network. So people oh, okay. So, so people okay. so no 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 you're welcome to to, to describe <laughs> it because not everyone's listened to that uh podcast. But I'm just saying for, for listeners who are interested, they could also go and find my interview with both of those authors uh, of of the book you're referring to. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, like, I mean, I, I, they call it carceral feminism, which is feminism that is focused on carceral solutions to problems that um, impact women. But I also think it's overblown a bit. I think most feminists, um, I mean, there's, 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 there was a break in feminism in the early 70s, which I'm sure Judith and Erica speak about, where, um, Many feminists were not comfortable with the uh, collusion with the state and having the state address things like domestic violence um, because they recognize that state violence is is just another form of violence. So it is a form of violence. It's not, you know, feminist in any kind of real sense, except that I guess that many of the victims are women. Um, and I'm a feminist. I just think that um, – these laws are, 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 are not feminist. They're just classic, you know, um, forms of violence that are punishing people without power. So I think if you 
um, are a bit critical. Um, it's kind of dismissive of feminism in some way to view these as feminist laws. And, and I think um, there's a lot of good work by, by women who recognize these laws are part of um, the problem and not some kind of like feminist solution to male violence. Right, right. Um, and okay, last question. Um, what do you hope people take away from your book? Um, I hope that people, number one, um, if they, on a, on, a, on a micro level, ever meet anybody or interact with anybody that's been convicted of a sex offense or accused, um, they can think about it critically and have empathy. Um, and then on a macro level, I hope that support for these laws and policymakers who make their careers on, you know, passing these laws and, and broadening these laws, that they don't support them and they recognize it's not an answer to sexual violence or anything else, that they're bad, cruel laws that um, destroy lives. Right, right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. And thank you for addressing these difficult topics, because I think even agreeing to have me on your podcast is very brave. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, you'll be ex accused of why did you have her on? She, you know, is not supportive of of, of people who are, are 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 victimized. So I think the more people that talk about it and think about it critically, it's it's really important. So thank you so much, Zalman. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, I just want to reiterate that um, uh, from my perspective, reading your, your, your work, it's very clear, as you note in the book numerous times, and as you've mentioned today, that you're absolutely uh, a, a strong supporter of accountability for people who have committed sex offenses, that this is something that needs to be addressed. You're not uh, 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 suggesting that it just uh, be ignored or, 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 or brushed under the carpet, that this is something that, that absolutely needs to be addressed, but it needs to be addressed in a thoughtful and, and, and rigorous manner that could actually um, uh, try to help prevent uh, 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 future instances of sex abuse and could try to deal with the trauma that is experienced on the part of the victim, as well as to try to help those who have committed these offenses to rebuild their lives and ensure that they don't make these kinds of choices going forward. Yes. Thank you so much. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye.